Thank you for watching NTD Business. Coming up tonight, Elon Musk's Twitter fact-checked President Biden again. He says he wants the platform to have the most accurate information. But can you have that and free speech at the same time? We explore this question. Three presidents converge in Pennsylvania to rally voters for a key Senate race. Who wins will likely decide which party controls the Senate. And at this year's UN Climate Conference, China is calling for more climate aid for developing countries. This despite being the largest carbon emitter on the planet, by far. That and much more coming up on NTD Business. Great to have you with us, Don Ma here. Twitter fact-checked a Sunday post by, by President Biden. He posted that right now the most common price at gas stations across the country is $3.19 a gallon. Following Biden's post, Twitter added a note under it. The note explained that Biden is referring to the most common gas price as opposed to the average price of $3.80, which is higher than the price Biden is talking about. The fact check wasn't necessarily a correction, but added more context and information. Twitter has at least twice fact-checked the president since Elon Musk took over. But Musk is facing a major dilemma. Today, he said that he wants Twitter to become by far the most accurate source of information. Now, that on its own is already a huge challenge. But he also wants the platform to have as much free speech as possible. But is this even possible? Can you have Twitter be the most accurate source of information and be a place of free speech simultaneously? Now, the problem arises when someone wants to say something that's mis- or disinformation on the platform. What if a large group of people wants to say something that's inaccurate? For example, uh, let's think about this scenario. Let's say a large number of people on Twitter believe that the 2020 presidential election was stolen. But let's say Musk's Twitter team believes it was a fair election. Would they censor those people in the name of accurate information? If you censor them, would that be infringing on their free speech? To get some answers, I spoke with a professional on the subject matter, social media professor at the University of Florida, Andrew Selipak. Free speech and accuracy are the antithesis of one another because when we talk about free speech, a lot of the discussion is the ability to kind of say anything that is legally allowed. And that often means that things that we say are incorrect. They might not be factually correct. They might just be an opinion. And it's really difficult to be able to have something where we say we're going to be the most accurate platform of any social media platform and also be the platform that allows the most free speech. Those things are really at odds with one another and will be difficult to accomplish. So basically what Selipak is saying is that you can't have a 100% accurate social media space while also having a space where you have 100% free speech. So for people on Twitter, there's going to be some sort of trade-off. And the reason is, according to Selipak, is that not everybody is going to be 100% knowledgeable on every topic, and not everybody has the most up-to-date and relevant information. So essentially, for people to be allowed to have free and open conversations, they are going to be able to say things that for whatever reason may or may not be untrue. In light of Musk saying he wants Twitter to become the most accurate source of information, Twitter's former CEO Jack Dorsey responded by saying, quote, accurate to who? Now, what he means is basically who gets to decide what's accurate information? There's so many voices out there, right? Musk responded by saying what's accurate information will be judged by the people of Twitter. So then, is accuracy a flawed metric for an application like Twitter? Should the aim be to maximize free speech instead on the platform? biggest way to combat 
fake information, fake news, misinformation is the disinfectant of sunlight to expose ideas to actual facts, to actual information. And any conflict that might occur can potentially and hopefully be solved by having a free, open, and fair conversation about everything so that we no longer have this conversation about is information accurate to who and who's in this information accurate to but when you have a full-on conversation and discussion and both sides have the opportunity to be heard that's where you have a better opportunity better chance better potential to reach consensus and find the truth which is often somewhere in the middle Last week, Elon Musk said Twitter is forming a council to oversee its content moderation decisions. And the council will consist of, quote, widely diverse viewpoints. I also asked Professor Selipak what he thinks the solution is in terms of free speech and accuracy of information. He says that a good way to have a platform that has the most free speech on the one hand and the most accuracy on the other hand is having verified accounts where the verification is awarded based on accuracy. The verified account may be held to a slightly higher standard of accuracy for their posts than the average person. And people who aren't verified will have more leeway to say what they want. This way you have a balance between both free speech and accuracy. And moving on, Elon Musk is headed back to trial in Delaware next week. It's not over his Twitter deal, but to defend his $56 billion salary at Tesla. The claim is that the electric car company unfairly enriches him without requiring his full-time presence. A Tesla shareholder is seeking to rescind Musk's 2018 pay deal claiming the board set easy performance targets and that Musk created the package to fund his dream of colonizing Mars. Tesla has countered that since the pay package was agreed upon, Musk has delivered an extraordinary tenfold increase in value to shareholders. The trial begins November 14th and will be decided by Kathleen McCormick on Delaware's Court of Chancery, the same judge who oversaw Twitter's lawsuit against Musk. But legal experts said the lawsuit by the Tesla shareholder is going to be much more difficult than Twitter's case against Musk. The shareholder's lawyers portray Musk as a part-time CEO at Tesla, arguing the 2018 pay deal failed its stated purpose of focusing Musk on Tesla. The company has argued the pay package was not about requiring Musk to punch a clock, but to hit, quote, audacious targets. According to court papers, Tesla has hit 11 of the 12 performance targets as the company's value has ballooned to more than $600 billion. Besides just recently appointing himself CEO of Twitter, Musk is also CEO of SpaceX. He's also either founded or co-founded three other companies, Neuralink, The Boring Company, and OpenAI. And Elon Musk is endorsing the Republican Party ahead of the midterms. This morning, he urged Americans to vote Republican. So power is shared in Washington. He tweeted to independent-minded voters. Shared power curbs the worst excesses of both parties. Therefore, I recommend voting for a Republican Congress, given that the presidency is Democratic. In May, Musk said he used to vote Democrat, but he blamed the party for sowing division and said he'd vote Republican. Musk describes himself as a political moderate. He rarely endorses candidates, but he has donated to members of both parties. And with the midterm elections tomorrow, all eyes are on Pennsylvania. The state will likely decide who controls the Senate. Over the weekend, three presidents descended for a final midterm push. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more. Pennsylvania Democratic Senate candidate John Fetterman is getting help from not one, but two U.S. presidents. 
Fetterman's running against Republican candidate Mehmet Oz, who only recently moved to the state. I know Pennsylvania well, and John Fetterman is Pennsylvania. He is Pennsylvania. And Oz and Pennsylvania? Former President Barack Obama joined President Biden on the campaign trail in Philadelphia Saturday night. Democracy itself is on the ballot. The stakes are high. Obama stumped for Fetterman in Pittsburgh earlier Saturday, saying the candidate's stroke had not changed his heart. He said Fetterman's health struggle has not changed his values. Fetterman asked his supporters to get out and vote. My last favor of all of you is please send Dr. Oz back to New Jersey. And please send me to Washington, D.C. Biden and Obama also showed their support for Democratic Pennsylvania governor candidate Josh Shapiro. Meanwhile, former President Trump was stumping for Oz. He said the vote could be the difference between having a country and not having a country. It could be 51. It could be 50, could be 49. And if it's 49 for the Republicans, this country, I don't know if it's going to live for another two years. That's what's happening. So you got to get out and vote for this man. He's a good man. At the same time, Trump also stumped for Doug Mastriano, who's running for governor against Josh Shapiro. Trump said Mastriano's a fighter and a warrior for the America First agenda. He is the only person in this race standing between your family and Pennsylvania being destroyed by violent crime. Your crime is destroying you here. Here's what Mastriano promised if he wins. On day one, all masking and jab requirements will end forever in Pennsylvania. You choose. <laughs> On day one, woke is broke. That's right. CRT is done. The Pennsylvania Senate race is a toss-up, while polling aggregate site Real Clear Politics currently rates Pennsylvania's governor race as leans Democrat. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. And from physical to digital, the National Guard will activate cybersecurity units in 14 states to help keep election officials' networks secure around the midterm elections. This includes battleground states like Arizona and Pennsylvania, as well as Colorado, North Carolina, New Mexico, New York, and Washington. The plan comes after eight states received support from cyber units in the National Guard during the primary elections earlier this year. Currently, there are nearly 40 dedicated cyber units across the United States to help with network assessments and risk mitigation. The units have more than 2,200 personnel. In crucial midterm elections tomorrow will decide control of the U.S. Congress, but determining a final winner could take hours after polls close or maybe even days. The key factor will be how and how quickly different states count what will likely be a mountain of mail-in ballots. The Washington Post on Sunday reported that the number of early votes so far cast exceeds the 2018 midterms, more than 39 million ballots. Some states, such as Florida, open mail-in ballots and load them into the tabulators ahead of election day to speed up the count. But others, such as Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, cannot open mail-in ballot envelopes until election day. Because Democrats vote by mail more often than Republicans, states that get an early jump in counting mail ballots could show large Democratic leads, a so-called blue mirage which then evaporate as vote counters tally Republican ballots cast on election day. States that are slower to count mail-in ballots could similarly show a red mirage, 
as heavily Republican Election Day ballots are cast first before the mail-in votes are tabulated. All 435 seats in the U.S. House of Representatives are on the ballot, as well as 35 U.S. Senate seats and 36 governorships. The balance of power is close. Republicans need to pick up just five seats to form a majority in the House, and only one to control the Senate. An early and massive red wave could lead to a Republican victory in a matter of hours after polls close. But key states like Pennsylvania have already warned it could take days to count every ballot. The first wave of vote tallies are expected on the East Coast between 7 and 8 p.m. Eastern Time. As polls close in the Midwest, control of the U.S. House could be clear by 11 p.m. Eastern. But if the fight still looks close as vote tallies come in from the West Coast, it could take a matter of days to know. California, Nevada, and Washington all count late arriving ballots if they are postmarked by November 8th. And our own, very own, live election, uh, live election night coverage starts at 6.30 p.m. Eastern tomorrow. It's a co-production with the Epoch Times, so be sure to tune in. And on Wall Street, U.S. stocks ended higher today. The Dow gained 424 points, or 1 and 3 tenths of a percent. S&P 500 added 36 points, or 1 percent. And the Nasdaq rose 89 points, or 9 tenths of a percent. China is telling developed nations to give more climate aid to poorer countries. This is happening at the 27th United Nations Climate Change Conference, or COP27, which has just begun. World leaders from major countries are gathering in Egypt this year to, quote, accelerate global climate action. The conference started off with the head of the UN saying the world is, quote, on a highway to climate hell with our foot on the accelerator. And once again, there were negotiations for compensating poorer countries impacted by climate problems. The president of Seychelles, a little-known country made up of 115 islands east of Africa, certainly made the case for his country. He said these annual meetings have little impact and involve promises that don't materialize. Our contribution in the destruction of the planet is minimal, yet we suffer the most. For example, the carbon emissions of Seychelles are very low, and yet our islands are disappearing and our coasts are being destroyed. The wealthier countries had previously failed to fulfill their promises to poorer nations. At COP15 back in 2009, they promised to give $100 billion per year by 2020, but they only gave $83 billion. Meanwhile, China, like I said at the beginning, is also starting the conference by calling for more aid. China, by the way, is doing the most to to go against the climate conference goals. It's by far the biggest emitter of carbon dioxide in the world. And China's stated climate goals are deemed highly insufficient by the Climate Action Tracker and Independent Scientific Analysis. It says China needs to have more ambitious targets. And China has repeatedly broken climate-related promises. In 2009, China broke the promise it made in the Copenhagen Accord. The country didn't cut emissions by 40% as it said it would. 2014, China promised to reduce its use of coal to under a certain amount. It didn't do that. During the 2015 Paris Climate Accords, China promised to cut emissions by 60% by 2030. Now, the only way for China to do this would be to massively cut down on coal. Yet today, coal is China's largest energy source by far. In 2019, China promised to implement a carbon emission trading system. It did, but fines were so low 
that the system may as, may as well not have existed at all. And now China is saying developed nations need to help poorer countries in areas like emissions reduction, financing, and adaptation. The chief national initiatives officer at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, Chuck DeVore, doubts these efforts will be successful. A lot of these are promises, many of which will not be kept. And if you look at natural disasters and deaths from natural disasters, uh, the amount of people dying every year from natural disasters around the globe has dramatically decreased over the last 100 years. Uh, it's been a massive decline. Uh, and that's been uh, largely because of the improvements in the standard of living around the world. It's not even clear uh, that, that there's any sort of a legitimate statistical link between a climate change and deaths from natural disasters. DeVore says that China can immediately break its promises because it knows it's so large and important that most politicians will give it a pass. And regarding the UN's approach to climate, DeVore believes that trying to reduce emissions is not the way. You're spending hundreds of billions of dollars to supposedly reduce emissions, even as emissions continue to climb, as Sub-Saharan Africa and India and China lift themselves out of poverty, and as a result, use more and more energy. Uh, the question is, might that money have been spent uh, better on other things? For example, uh, nuclear uh, energy technology or other technologies that would allow humankind to adapt to a changing world. Uh, because Frankly, all of this money spent on reducing emissions uh, has not reduced emissions in any appreciable sense. The comms director for Power of the Future, Larry Behrens, believes China is using the climate agenda to push its own geopolitical goals. They're demanding that other countries pay a lot of money for climate change, saying that they need to step up to the plate to pay that $100 billion a year. But when it comes to shutting down coal, they say we're going to continue to do it. In fact, you know, the U.S. President Joe Biden recently said just last week we're going to shut down coal plants across the United States for wind and solar. Well, who makes wind and solar equipment? That's China. And how do they do it? They do it with coal. Behrens believes China is trying to put other countries at a disadvantage, especially the United States. Moving on, Apple is warning of lower shipments of iPhone 14 models. It's because of a significant production cut at a plant in China. And that's thanks to China's zero COVID policy. No surprise there. China today reported its highest number of new COVID-19 infections in six months. The factory in central China employs about 200,000 people, but many workers have fled in response to tight restrictions. The area where the factory is located entered a seven-day lockdown on Wednesday. Measures included barring residents from going out and only allowing access to approved vehicles. Apple expects revenue growth to slow this quarter. And Goldman Sachs says China may still be months away from re reopening. The country's sticking to its zero-COVID policy, even though most of the world has moved on. Yesterday, economists at the bank said elderly vaccination rates in China are still low. They also said the death rates appear high among those unvaccinated. They cited Hong Kong data. Goldman thinks China might reopen in the, next, in the second quarter of next year. It says a full reopening could drive Chinese stocks up 20%. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, please email us at business at ntd.com. Still to come after the break, is a pilot strike coming to Delta Airlines? The company's CEO gives us his take. We take a look at a bond that's protected against inflation and some downsides you should know about it. That and more coming up on NTD Business.
Welcome back. The CEO of Delta Airlines says a pilot strike is not imminent. Last week, Delta pilots voted in favor of authorizing a potential future strike. They want better pay and benefits as a shortage of pilots continue to plague airlines. Today, the CEO said no strike is in sight and talks are progressing. Should people worry about a strike? Absolutely not. We're making great progress at the table. This is a tactic that all the unions, the airline unions, have gone through. The pilots at the other properties have done the same thing. It's really the, the, the try, trying to drive some attention to the issue. We're already at the table trying to, trying to work out a deal. The authorization for a potential strike does not allow for a work stoppage around Thanksgiving travel. And one guaranteed way to beat inflation is growing in popularity. So much that demand actually crashed a government website. And now the Treasury Department has issued a new rate for serious I bonds, meaning you can still get a great return on those inflation-protected bonds. But should you consider them? Today, we look at what experts say about this type of investment, including three possible downsides. A silver lining for investors amid historic inflation? Series 1 savings bonds. But there are people in the economy who aren't doing well. They're actually profiting from this. Experts say the interest rates that you earn are fantastic due to the Federal Reserve's repeated moves to cool the economy and lower inflation. Analysts say demand has gone up tremendously because the I-bond is protected from inflation and it offers a safe return. So if you want to put some money into a fixed income asset that is inflation protected, I-bonds might be a great strategy for you. The Treasury Department has announced a new rate, saying it will pay 6.89% through April of next year. That's down from the bond's previously historic high of 9.62 rate which caused demand to explode last month, briefly causing the Treasury website to crash. The Treasury said from November of 2021 till October 28th, when the deadline for that 9.62% rate expired, $35 billion in money flowed into I-bonds. So that's people with money. Experts say if you decide to invest in these bonds, here are some possible downsides that you should consider. One, you can't cash it out for at least one year. Two, it takes five years to get the total amount of interest. Three, the incentive might be short-lived because the rate could come down as the Fed continues to take action. And experts remind you to invest wisely. So I like to tell folks, don't invest any money that you don't need for at least 10 years. And the six most commonly used over-the-counter supplements for heart health do not help lower cholesterol. Though ads may say fish oil, garlic, cinnamon, turmeric, red yeast, and plant sterols are heart healthy, that may not be the case according to a new study in the American Journal of Cardiology. In a side-by-side -side comparison with a statin medication and placebo, they failed. Only the statin prescription medication actually reduced cholesterol levels by a significant amount. One author called the so-called heart healthy vitamins and supplements, quote, snake oil. Researchers say most American adults are unaware most dietary supplements are not tested in double-blind clinical trials. And that's all we have today from the NTD business team and myself, Don Ma. You can follow me on Twitter too. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at business at ntd.com. That's all for today. Be sure to join us tomorrow for election coverage and we'll see you on Wednesday.